today we're going to try to uh, uh, attempt to answer the question, what does the Bible, when it comes to the case for truth, what does the Bible say about human sexuality? And uh, I'm going to try to keep this as PG as possible this morning because of a variety of ages here. Next week, my friend Joe Dallas, who uh, still attends the church I used to pastor in Southern California. By the way, I see one of my mentors, uh, Ray and Judy. Uh, Rachel's with us today. So great to have you visiting in town from Southern California. You were my pastor down there, district superintendent. Um, Joe Dallas is out of the gay lifestyle and thoroughly transformed by the power of Jesus Christ and writes and speaks extensively on the area of homosexuality and other areas of sexuality. He is going to be speaking next week. We will be contacting you as parents if you want an alternate for your younger children who might otherwise be in the 1045 service next week, but you won't want to miss next week. Few people I know, like Joe, uh, really find that, that, that nuanced integration of both biblical conviction and yet personal compassion. And so uh, you won't want to miss next week. I'm going to lay the groundwork today out of God's word, though. What does, God's, what does the Bible teach us? about human sexuality. And first of all, just some overall observations, if you would. The Christian faith, as we'll be seeing, holds to the highest view of the human body. Basically, what we're going to be talking about is our bodies today. I don't know what you think of your body, but it's very important to know what God thinks of your body. And unlike most other religious systems or philosophical systems, we don't worship the human body. But Christianity holds the highest view of the human body you'll find anywhere. And and God's guidelines for our bodies, it's important never to forget this, God's guidelines for our bodies are for our wholeness and thriving. God, God, God wants you to be whole and to thrive in life. Now, when you were a kid, I don't, you know, you may have with everything inside of you wanted to run out into the street all by yourself or touch that hot oven, or chew that used gum that you found under a chair somewhere. But hopefully you had people in your life that loved you enough to put some boundaries around your behavior. And God's boundaries around our behavior, God's guidelines, are meant to keep us healthy and to help us thrive in life. And it's sexual immorality that especially distorts, of, of, of numbers of things, But sexual immorality distorts and defeats those purposes of wholeness and thriving in our lives. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 19, for out of the heart, of the heart, our hearts, out of the heart comes evil thoughts. And then he gets specific. Murders, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. And you'll notice that murder, slander, false testimony, theft, they're all violating things. They, they, they distort and they defeat. And uh, in the midst of that list of destructive things, he puts adultery, which is unfaithfulness in marriage, and sexual immorality, which would be other forms of sexual activity outside of marriage, because there is something distorting and defeating to the human condition um, 
when these things that come out of the evil of our hearts begin to dominate. That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, and that instead each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. God has in mind your wholeness and your thriving. And there is something about your body that God wants to restore control, self-control to, so that your body is used in a way that's holy and honorable. It comes back to, to God's guidelines for our bodies. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this is where we'll actually end the message a little later. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, flee or run away from sexual immorality. Our culture is running towards sexual immorality. But God said, you need to run away from it. For all other sins that a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. That's a pretty puzzling verse. I mean, why, why would he say that? Most other sins are sins against God, against other people. But sexual sin, although it can at times make victims of other people, it always involves sinning against your own body. And to understand why he would say that, we, we need to understand, in fact, we're gonna, we're gonna look at some theology today. I don't want that word to throw you off, but we need to look at how God sees your body to understand why he would say that sexual sin is uniquely sin against your own body. And this is going to be some theology today about our bodies. And there's going to be two reference points for this theology about our bodies. First of all is creation and then Christ himself in our new situation in Christ. So that's where we're going to go today if you just hang with me. First of all, we're going to start way back in Genesis chapter 1 with our bodies and creation. For in verse 27 of Genesis chapter 1, so God created mankind in his own image. In other words, you're not an accident. You're here on purpose. God created humanity, mankind, in his own image. An image is something you would see when you, you, you put up a mirror and, and, and look at yourself. It's not saying we are God, but we uniquely, unlike any other animal in the animal kingdom, we, we uniquely were created in his image with, with capacity to bear traits of his character and to know him personally. This is it. But even right from the beginning, he brings our bodies into this. For he says, God created mankind in his own image. And then a kind of Hebrew poetic parallelism in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So male and female, here are our bodies, male and female. And you can't separate your body from personhood. Um, if you have a low view of the, your body, maybe, maybe you say, well, my body is my body, but it's not really me. God's word, the Christian view of the body, integrates your body with your whole personhood, spirit and soul. You are spirit soul and body and so and so he said you're created in the image of God spirit and soul but male and female as well body as well this is 
the totality of how you're created. And it means that our bodies, if he did this, it means that our bodies, first of all, are designed for God. Let me state, designed by God, let me state the obvious. It's designed by God to be valued and not to be violated. Listen, your body is of immense, immense value because God created it. And it's a part of your whole personhood. And when we, when we reduce anybody's body, anybody's personhood to just an object, like in pornography, we would look at a person's body not as a person but as an object for self-gratification. Or whenever you've, you would abuse somebody else sexually, whenever you reduce a person just to a body, just to an object separate from personhood, then, then, then you, are, you are clearly defiling God's design right there. Like a friend of mine used to say, lust is like cutting off the head and pulling out the heart and wanting what's left. It's making objects out of people. God never intended you to be just an object. He created you body, soul, and spirit. Spirit, soul, and body. That's why I love the way Beth Jones put it in her book, Faithful. For Christians, women aren't property or baby makers, and men aren't lust machines or power mongers. God has a higher calling for you. Spirit, soul, and body. And notice he says in, in that par intentional parallel structure that that God created mankind in his own image. And then he says, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. In other words, there is something of a direct link between male and female and image of God. Somehow in our, in our maleness and our femaleness, it's obviously an intentional uh, by God's design and it's up related to the image of God. And that means that our gender, male and female, is not fluid or subject to choice, but it, according to Genesis 1, is the result of God's creative design. We know this scientifically. If you were born a girl, you have an XX chromosome. If you were born a boy, you have an XY chromosome. And sometimes, sometimes our pain, our brokenness, our unmet needs, in some people, this becomes a great struggle where it feels like, like, like our soul becomes disconnected with our biological gender. And, and, and that happens because unmet needs and pain and things can sometimes get sexualized in our lives. This is sometimes behind homosexuality as well. And, and, and we can get away from God's plan. And we can begin to think, well, I just feel differently about my body than what my body really is. God's plan is to bring wholeness again. God's plan is to reunite and reintegrate you because your gender is holy. God created you with either an XX chromosome or an XY chromosome. This is holy to God. Your gender is not to be tampered with. It's intentional, it's holy, and it's a deliberate act of God in your life. And somehow in our maleness and our femaleness, therefore we reflect the image of God. The Sums of God has a position paper on this subject uh, written by a commission that's actually chaired by Dr. James Raley, who is a member of Central Assembly here and a wonderful man of God. I love one line out of that paper of the many helpful 
things in it. The paper just writes, our gendered bodies, male, female, our gendered bodies serve as testimonies to our responsibility to live as God's image. It's not just my choice, but it's, it's my calling to live out God's image as I embrace the holiness of the gender that God gave to me biologically. And then he goes on in the very next verse to unpack God's plan even further. When he says in verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. He talks about being fruitful, of course. This is the ability of in marriage a man and woman to bear children and to reproduce. In some ways, this is part of God's image in us as creator. God's the creator. And what a holy thing that God does give human beings the capacity to, in a sense, recreate, to have children. And this comes from the intimate union physically between a husband and a wife. He says, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And this means that sexual relationships or that physical intimacy between a husband and wife, they are actually God's idea by divine design. I've actually heard adults say, it's someday, one day, it struck me, sex was God's idea. I, I would have never thought of that before, but it is. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of shame that gets associated with this. And shame afflicted humanity after Adam's and e Adam and Eve's rebellion against God in Genesis chapter three, but we're still in Genesis chapter one. And God had a plan that the sexual act would be a part of reproducing, part of human dynamic and relationship. It's God's design. And shame only comes later. After sin, Adam and Eve wanted to cover up. They wanted to hide. That's always what sin, that's what, always what distortion does to our lives. It begins to destroy. It's amazing to me that God so loved the world that what did he do, do speak a word? No, he sent, his, he, he sent his own son. He so loved us that he sent his own son and he took on a body, a body, a little physical body. Your bodies, bodies are important to God. And he took on a body and he hung on the cross in part to pay the penalty for our sin, to take away our guilt. But he hung there probably almost naked and subjected to the shaming powers of his culture as they mocked him and made fun of him and ridiculed him. And he was just standing, hanging, tortured, completely exposed, ultimately shamed. Why? Because God sent his son, took on a body so that both the guilt of sin and the power of shame could be released from us. And some of us have had a fair amount of sexual failure in our past and immorality. But I'm just here to say that Jesus has come to take away your shame. Hallelujah. He's not clubbing you over the head today, but he's saying, I hung on a cross to take away your shame. And so, in chapter 2 of Genesis, God gives us the context by which um, this amazing thing happens of physical intimacy between a man and a woman. And he says in verse 24 of Genesis 2, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become, 
He's talking about our bodies now. They become one flesh. Except this expression, one flesh, this Hebrew expression, one flesh, refers to more than just a sexual union. It is bonding, which is a bonding act. But, but this, is, this is a life-uniting act, one flesh. It's very, it's very powerful. It's between a man and a woman who biologically may be able to potentially bear children. But this one flesh relationship, which involves union at every level in our lives, my wife and I enjoy spiritual connection and, and as well as physical connection and, and emotional connection. And, and there's just this bondedness that God created us for and lived out and actually actualized with our bodies. This is a holy thing. And it's a, it's a life uniting act. I've told you this story before because sometimes we think, well, it's just a biological act. No, becoming one flesh is a life-uniting act. It bonds you in many different ways. I told you the story before of a, a, a couple. I did their marriage years ago, and uh, they'd come to Christ as adults and then got married. And, um, a little while after their marriage, they came in, and, and, um, and the wife, the lady, she was just being tormented night after night after night. I mean, no let up of this. Night after night with very demonic, horrifying dreams involving a certain person. And just horrifying dreams. And uh, it was so bad that, that they thought we'd better go talk to our pastor. and Maybe he can pray with us. And we just began to explore. It turned out that she had lived a very immoral life before she came to Christ. And for a while, she lived with a guy who was actually a witch. He was involved in the occult. And the Bible's not kidding when it says they become one flesh. This is more than just a physical act. This is a bonding act. And uh, so we began to explore that. I started asking some probing questions. And so then in prayer, we could, she asked forgiveness afresh for that. And then in Jesus' name, we broke a bond, even spiritually, that had been formed through sexual immorality. I mean, sometimes people who have had many, many sexual partners, they will say, I feel like every time I just lost part of myself because it's like glue, one flesh, and, 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 and it breaks open only with the tearing of the human personality. And we prayed in Jesus' name for wholeness and restoration. And from that moment on, she never had a tormenting demonic dream because Jesus begins to bring. But we're, we're, we're not playing games here. This is more than just having fun. There, there's real life things. And that's why this bonding, life-uniting act necessitates the protection of a lifelong covenant or commitment. That's why I don't give my body to you unless you're willing to pledge your loyalty to me for the rest of my life. Because we'll become one flesh. And that's why outside of marriage, that becoming one flesh, and God calls sin, and he does it for your wholeness and your thriving and the protection of the integrity of you spiritually, psychologically, humanly. And this is, this is why it's God's plan. And so Paul writes this in Ephesians 5, where he's talking about marriage, actually. You think he's talking about marriage. And he says, for this reason, and he quotes Genesis 2, for this reason, and both Jesus and Paul quoted Genesis 
2 and this verse as applying to marriage. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become what? One flesh. There it is, bonded together. And then he says this. He said, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. In other words, he's saying, this act, confined to a lifelong covenant of loyalty to one another, the one flesh act, is your marriage is the closest, if you're married, the closest picture on earth to the relationship that Jesus wants to have with his church. Jesus in his 33 years on earth never did marry physically and humanly, but he was on another mission. He was on a mission to have his bride, a church, you and me, that he, he could have intimate spiritual connection with, that we could be his and he would be ours. And he did it with a covenant. That's what we call the New Testament, the new covenant that he sealed and bought when he died on the cross for us. He made a covenant with us and then invited us to relationship with him. And marriage is the earthly picture of this covenant. That's why your marriage, by the way, is worth fighting for. It's a holy thing. And so that brings us not just to our bodies in Christ, but our bodies and creation itself. There is something, um, uh, not just our bodies in creation, but, but our bodies and Christ himself, this new situation that we have in Christ. And your bodies get tied into this in a very consistent way. Let's, let's conclude with that, our bodies in Christ. We're going to come back to 1 Corinthians 6, where earlier Paul said, sexual sin is unique from other sins in that you're sinning against your own body. And he'll really unpack this for us. Not only, not only do, do our bodies have value and our genders are holy and, 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 and there's, there's this covenant of marriage that protects uh, physical intimacy between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. But, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you'll say, God has an eternal plan for your body. Why would he have to say that? Because the Corinthians, with their Greek background, they thought that the body's not that important. The body's going to be done away with someday, so what does it matter what I do with my body? And Paul says, uh-uh, uh-uh. God has an eternal plan for your body. So that's why in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 6, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Remember when Jesus rose from the dead? He had a resurrected body, right? You could still see the wounds from crucifixion on him. He had a resurrected body. And he said, God is not gonna just eliminate your body. It's not just about your spirit that's eternal. God's going to raise your body. God has an eternal plan for your body. He created it. It has immense value. It's on purpose. And he is going to raise your body someday. So you don't just do whatever you want with your body. God has an eternal plan. We as Christians don't believe in reincarnation. That would be a lower view of the body. That we, you know, you're in this life with a certain body and then it's done away with and then who knows what body you have in another life. We, we don't ascribe to reincarnation. We ascribe to resurrection that Jesus is going to raise us up as Christ was raised. And so this is where it starts. You have immense value because God has an eternal plan for your body in Christ. He's going to raise you. He will also raise us. Jesus will. And then, and then he goes on to say, not only that, but your bodies in Christ are the Lord's. They now belong to the Lord. 
So he says in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute, as apparently some of the people in the church were doing, thinking their bodies weren't that important, so who cares what I do with my body? He says, so do you, but he said, don't you know that your body, not only is it created by God, but if you belong to Christ, it's a member of Christ. You're part of his body. So do I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never, he says. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one body with her? Is one with her in body? For it is said, and here comes Genesis 2 again, the two will become one flesh. So there's something life-uniting. And he said, how can you do this with somebody else outside of marriage when your body is united with the Lord? Sexual impurity may be celebrated everywhere in our culture today, but our bodies are not only created by God as a part of our personhood, but they belong to the Lord in a profound way. Listen, when you face sexual temptation, never forget that your body doesn't belong to you. Your body belongs to the Lord, and it's holy. And so you don't become one flesh with just any. And he doesn't quite stop there. And here's where he's going to land. He said, our bodies are also the temple. Can you believe this? Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, we live in a church building, but we don't call this building the temple of the Holy Spirit. But you, your body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. The only other thing the Bible calls the temple of the Holy Spirit is his gathered church, as we felt his presence today, that God comes in his gathered church. I hate it when COVID kept us all apart. But in his gathered church, he sanctuaries his presence. Nothing more important than God's presence among us as we come together. But when we're apart, you know what? There's every one of us, our individual temples. We have a pet rabbit, it bites me, it hates me, but it loves my wife. The one thing I can say, its body is not the temple of the Holy Spirit. But I want to tell you, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine that? A temple of the Holy Spirit. So he says, verse 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? The Holy Spirit you received from God is in you. Your body was designed, it's holy, it's valued. It's, it's, it's to be a part of the whole person that you are as created in the image of God. And he says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. That's what Jesus did when he took his body himself and he hung on that cross to take away our sin and shame. At the same time, he bought you. He bought you body, soul, and spirit. He bought you soul, spirit, and body. So don't you know your bodies belong to the Lord? You're purchased with a price. You don't belong to yourself. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. And that's the theological foundation. It has everything to do with how God views your body. It's a holy thing. And at the deepest levels... where failure and violation and sin in these areas has taken place at the deepest levels, we can be restored. Body, soul, and spirit. We can be restored.
It fascinates me that this whole discussion at the end of 1 Corinthians 6 starts this rewind and go just before the first verse there we read in 1 Corinthians 6 a few minutes ago where he talks about God having an eternal plan for your body. He's going to raise you. The verse is right before. Verse 9, do not be deceived, Paul said. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Because all of that is outside of God's demand, God's design, and it distorts the image of God. The devil's agenda is to destroy the image of God in you by making you greedy, by, making, by destroying your human relationships, and by leading you into sexual sin. All of this is the devil's design to destroy the image of God in you. And he says, such, such were all of you. In fact, Paul will write elsewhere, all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so he says, that is what some of you were. That is what some of you were. And what would you think he'd say next? Would he say, and that's what some of you were. So that's why God hates you and I hate you. Is that what Paul's going to say next? Absolutely not. Instead, he says, but you were washed. And you were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. That's why we're sending people to Iraq. That's why we are people of the gospel. That's why there's hope for every one of us as broken as our past may have been. Such were some of you. And he doesn't say to these people who are greedy and, and, and alcoholics and, and sexual addicts, he doesn't say, and that's what you still are. No, because in Christ, we're no longer def defined by our failure and our sin. Our identity is defined by Christ Jesus. Such were, were some of you, but now you're washed, you're sanctified, set apart, you're justified, you're not subject to God's judgment by the name of Jesus and the Spirit of God that works powerfully in us. And it's because of that there's hope for every one of us. No matter what kind of temptation in any area of life you're facing, including sexual, no matter what the failure be in the past. I have a friend who corresponds with me once in a while. I'm just in the process of writing an endorsement for a book she's gonna publish. She had incredible sexual failure in her life, distortion. And, and she wrote these words. She said, the key to my own transformation was not just perseverance. This is more than behavior modification. But, but it came by facing the pain in my soul, replacing lies with truth, and allowing Jesus to bring resolution to the developmental factors that contributed to, in her case, my same-sex attraction and transgender issues. And today she's living as a completely transformed, Spirit of God filled person. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So the great thinker of the 20th century, C.S. Lewis, writes We are half hearted creatures 
fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We're like that arrogant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. Oh, we're far too easily pleased. Don't settle with defeat. Don't settle with brokenness. Don't be half-hearted in terms of what Jesus can do to you. You can be washed. You can be sanctified. You can be set right and justified with God. And wholeness can be restored because God so loved the world that he gave his only son who took on a body just like us that whoever believes in him should not perish. Death should be thrown into reverse and life begin to come to every part of our personhood. I'd like you to bow your heads, worship team, if you would come and close your eyes. (laughs) 